Welcome to the Hot Coffee Podcast with your hosts, Belinda Weaver and Kate Toon. In each 20-minute episode, we'll be sharing the secrets of successful copywriters, including copywriting tips, shortcuts, writing resources, interviews, and laughs, all focused on helping you to become a better copywriter. I'm Belinda Weaver, and this is my co-host, Kate Toon. Hello. This week, we're answering some copywriting questions from our lovely, lovely listeners in our first ever Q&A session. We have some fun ones, questions that is, and some tricky ones, so it should be an interesting show. So we recently put out a call out for questions on our Facebook and Google pages, um, and we got some really great questions back from Hot Copy listeners. Before we get stuck in, um, Kate and I wanted to quickly thank every listener who has posted a review on iTunes or Stitcher. They really, really mean a lot to us, and they keep us really excited about creating this podcast. And, you know, if you put a real name to your review when you do it, we will make a meme just for you. Yes, and share it across the interwebs. And if you haven't had time to squeeze out a review yet, no worries. We get that there's a lot to do, but we really appreciate them. So, yeah, if you get time to add it to your to-do list, that would be fab. So, let's get into these questions, Kate. The first one is from another Kate. Uh, Kate Merriweather is about SEO, so I'm handling that straight to you. Okie dokie. Yeah, there's lots of copywriters called Kate. There's uh, must be a good name for copywriters, but anyway... <laughs> Kate Merriweather asks, my question is about blogging. Clients want to do the least possible blogging for the most possible SEO benefit. What do you think is the right frequency? Um, Well, it's a good question and it's one that I'm asked quite a lot. Um, I personally believe that Google rewards the best content, not the latest or the most regular. Yes, when you first post your blog post, there's a brief window of positivity from Google um, where your post might appear slightly higher in the rankings than normally. But then after about 24 to 48 hours, that blog post generally shuffles down the pack of rankings and finds its natural level. So I used to post every week, but now it's more like monthly. Um, It's been, I think it may be, forgive me, it's been a month since I last posted on my blog. Um, And my best performing posts aren't my newest. Um, It obviously, you know, over time, blog posts can build up a lot of link juice, a lot of shares, a lot of comments. And obviously, if you reshare them again and again, they get more and more eyeballs. So some of my oldest posts are actually my best performing. Um, I think it's about finding a good frequency for your business. If you're able to produce rich, engaging content that's really useful and packed with advice and tips and genuinely answers a customer concern every week, and you can do that every week, all power to you. Go for it. But I'd rather post one good post a month than for not so good ones, just so that I hit my weekly regular schedule. So, in summary, I would say that regularity isn't a great deal, a big deal. It's more around great content. Um, and I just want to add something here. So that's from an SEO point of view. But obviously, we always have to think about customers as well and our readers. And if you've built up kind of an expectation that you're going to put a blog post up every week and you've got a lot of followers and they're kind of waiting for that, well, then they could get fed up if you miss that. So my advice is don't build up that expectation because <laughs> then you'll just disappoint people. Um, so, yeah, that, I hope that helps. <laughs> yeah, I agree, Kate. I, I'm all for consistency, I have to admit. So I think if you want people to um, 
show up, then you need to show up as well. And I, and I think bloggers who blog too randomly from a customer reader point of view, when it's too random, I kind of forget about them. Yeah, interesting, because I know that you are a very regular uh, blogger and you do stick to quite a schedule and I see your blogs appearing sort of each week. I am totally random, um, so I am the, I'm, I'm the bad guy in, in your little description there. <laughs> but I, I, I do find that, that people still show up, so I don't know. I, do, I just think it depends on the relationship and the expectation you set with your reader. Um, I think because I'm so sporadic, people are like, oh my God, she's posted again, so maybe I'll go read it. Um, well, that's and also, true, that's I, a good point. And I mean, you, you just said you read share old posts as well so I feel like you're in my my feed a lot more yeah well I this is it I don't rely on blog posts um to fill up my feed so sometimes I'll just put the content directly into my social media rather than putting it in a blog you know tips and ideas and I post a lot of random stuff on social media so yes I'm in everyone's feed probably far too much uh, but anyway <laughs> we love it we love it, we love it. <laughs> All right, so the next question we've got is from Angela Denley who asked, great copywriting is often set apart from merely good copywriting by a deeper understanding of the audience and their motives. What are some of your best tips and strategies for getting into the head of audiences and customers, etc.? So I think understanding motives is critically important as a copywriter, just like you need to dig deep into uncovering the benefits, which we covered in episode 10, if you want to take a trip back there. Just like uncovering those benefits, you need to uncover the motives. And the reason that's important is because the underlying motives, the reasons why we do what we do, the real reasons, they will more often than not... um, make us ignore our rational brain. And what I mean is, you know, our rational brain says we don't really need that expensive shampoo from the ad, but the underlying motive that we feel we want to be sexy and feminine, just like the chick off the ad. So we kind of ignore those rational arguments and we buy these expensive products. Now that's just one example, but hopefully you can understand why these motives are so important. Now, how to understand those motives in your target audience. The most obvious answer is to ask them, but I think this can be difficult or impossible for a few reasons. First, as a copywriter, you hardly ever have access to the target audience unless you happen to have a friend or someone you know who fits the profile. Um, You don't always have time or resources to do kind of really heavy market research. You're really relying on your client to tell you about their customers. Um, And then the third reason I think it can be difficult is that the target audience sometimes just don't know. Steve Jobs famously said that people don't know what they want until you show it to them. So, So more often than not, you have to kind of think laterally. So I like to jump on to product review sites and social media pages and read complaints and praise. Now, the complaints are often more telling because you really get to grips with frustrations people are facing, what they're complaining about. They're the problems that aren't being solved. So you can kind of think about the motives that are driving them forward. Other places are community hubs um, like forums as I mentioned, social media pages, also great places to kind of get a feel for different target audiences and what's concerning them. So you won't get all the answers there, but hopefully those kind of forums and places where people are are hanging out and talking to brands can give you a feel for worries and frustrations. And from there, you can do some brainstorming and use your imagination. Kate, how do you approach this kind of stuff? 
Well, I think uh, this is a great question. Um, and, and it's one of those ones that for me is tied in with what makes a great copywriter. Um, and I think that one of the keys to being a great copywriter is empathy. Um, so I don't have a great grasp on grammar and my spelling isn't that good. But I think I'm pretty awesome at getting inside the head of my client and their customers. I don't know if it's from reading too many books uh, as a kid, but uh, empathy is, I've almost got too much empathy, I think. Um, and I use the BDF principle uh, to try and outline um, the customer's beliefs, fears, and design. So BDF. So beliefs is all around that, you know, preconceived beliefs about the product or service. So for example, you're working with a copywriter and if you've never worked with one before and you, you know, you're approaching it, what would your preconceived beliefs be about working with a copywriter? You know, and often those are, are that it's going to be really time consuming or expensive or they're just not going to get your business. So those are some beliefs that we might be working with. And then I look at fears. Um, you know, what are, what are people afraid of? What, you know, what's going to put them off working with you or buying that product or using that service? Um, you know, so again, in the copywriter example, it might be that you're going to bamboozle them or you're going to ask them loads of questions or it's just going to be really annoying. <laughs> I don't know. And then desires. Um, and this is tapping into your, you know, wanting to be gorgeous and, and buying that product uh, thing that you talked about earlier, you know. What do people want? What are their desires? You know, that they want the product or service to make their life easier or to make them more likable or whatever it may be. So, yeah, I think trying to outline the BDF of your customers can be helpful um, and addressing those in the copy. Um, and how do I do that? Well, I, I mean, I am a big believer in using your imagination. Um, pretty much every product and service that I write for, you know, at some point I've either used it or I might use it. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to go, okay, well, put myself in the shoes of the person that's going to be, you know, using this window cleaning service or talking to this lawyer. What would they want? And just, you know, thinking about it. And another trick, I guess, is to think about a person who matches the demographic perfectly. You know, if you're not a 21-year-old who's going to buy this awesome dress from this website that you're writing for. Do you know a 21-year-old that you can use in your mind and picture and think, how would I talk to them? What are they interested in? And just imagine that you're writing for them. I think that imagination is really a big one. <laughs> it is. It is indeed. But I love your BDF principle. Yeah. I don't know where I got that from. It's obviously not mine. It's somebody else's I've stolen. But um, I think it's quite a well-worn copywriting thing thing. But it, yeah, it, it works for me. Just that sketching down a few little points on that can really be a great starting point. And I like your idea about looking at reviews um, and forums. I'm actually going to use that today for one of the clients I'm writing for. I think that's a great idea. So um we're always learning, always yep. learning from Swapsies. each other. Swapsies. Swapsies. <laughs> well, the next question comes from Jennifer Morton, who asked us about cancellation policies and working with friends. So she said, I've recently had a bad experience doing business with a friend. She cancelled the upcoming work with 15 hours notice after I'd sent her invoice after I'd, sorry, after I'd sent her my invoice for 50% deposit. I realized that I didn't have a cancellation policy in place, but aside from that, I felt a bit portrayed and used by the friend. We're not really friends anymore, and what advice would you give me about cancellation policies and working with friends? Such a good question, and I, ah, oh, seriously, the number of times I've been asked this. Um, I'm going to lay it out there. I do not work with friends. 
It's that simple. If someone comes to me wanting copy or anything else, you know, obviously when people find out you're a copywriter or you work online, they're like, can you build my website? Can you write this brochure? Can you help me with this? And I just don't do it anymore. Instead, I refer them to someone good in my network. And by having that really black and white policy, it means there's no hard feelings because I just go, I never work with friends, sorry. And they can't go, hey, but you did that job for Sue because I didn't do that job for Sue. So it makes it much easier to say no. Um, now, obviously, I did work for friends in the past. And we talked about this when we talked about clients uh, in one of our earlier podcasts that friends are often the place where you start getting work because you don't know anybody else. Um, and I think that's fine, you know, for the first six months to a year, you might have to just suffer through and suffer through the disappointments and learn learn how that but once you get to a position where you are getting real clients, really consider whether it's worth working with friends because in my experience it's often a whole world of pain. Expectations vary so much. So you know, you think you've done a great job and you think you've fulfilled everything the friend asked you to do, but the friend doesn't feel like that, but they don't want to say because you're their friend and you don't want to say because they're your friend and it, oh, it's all icky and horrible. So look, if you are going to work with friends, I still think you should stick to your processes. So get them to complete a brief. You put together a proposal where you outline everything you're going to do and what it would have cost them if they were a real client and then strike through that cost figure so they can see, well, look, this is what I'm getting and this is what it would have cost me, which will make them appreciate it a little bit more. Um, you know, and if you've dropped that rate, make that clear to them what you've dropped, but be very clear about what you are doing and what you're not doing and how much discussion time is in there. Um, and just on, on the point there about cancellation policies and deposits, Although I think Jennifer had sent her deposit, she hadn't been paid her deposit. Now, until someone's paid me to deposit, that job isn't happening. It's not scheduled. It's not in my time plan. I haven't resourced for it. There's no window for it. Until I see that money in my bank, do I even start putting it into any kind of project plan? So for me, that project was never real because they never gave you the money. So I don't even do a briefing until I have the money in my account. Um, and, you know, that for me works great. So it's, you know, it sounds very harsh. Obviously, you might have a five minute conversation, but I'm not going to sit for an hour and talk to you until you've paid me. Um, so yeah, those are my rules. I'm very hard and fast. Um, but, you know, in this situation, I'd say, unfortunately, you kind of have to suck it up and mark it down to experience, but make some decisions based on this and review your terms and conditions and make sure that it doesn't happen again. Have you ever had that happen, Belinda? I'm I haven't actually worked with friends. Um, none of my friends have really asked me. <laughs> You're actually friends. That's the truth. Yes, oh my God. <laughs> no, um, I actually, like, I have had friends refer me um, as the copywriter for the company that they've worked for. Yeah. Um, so that's been interesting. But I um, would have gone in exactly as you said, like you said, exactly like a real customer because it is a real customer. To be honest, I would never even discount for friends. <laughs> You. Because there's that idea um, that mixed messages you're giving and they're sending about um, about what the service entails, and I think as soon as you start discounting, um, then the, you're devaluing. So you, you your tip about putting the number, the full pricing in the proposal, even if you knock the price down, is really important. Um, and you know, on cancellations, I my cancellation policy only kicked in once the project had started and the project has only started once the deposit has been paid, just like yeah. you. 
Yeah, agreed. I mean, I must admit, I don't really have a cancellation policy. Um, if someone has to cancel for whatever reason, then they have to cancel. If I've already started doing the work, then I'll bill for the time that I've spent. But, you know, people yeah. have to cancel. Things happen. Maybe they ran out of money. Maybe, you know, something's come up in their personal life. It's not personal. Um, and I think being too hard about cancellations, going, if you dare cancel, I'm going to charge you 50% of this. You know, I don't know if that's great business. Hopefully your workflow is good enough that you know the cancellation doesn't completely ruin your life to be honest when I get cancellations it's a huge relief because I generally tend to overbook myself so you know consider your cancellation policy don't make it too harsh because you know generally people aren't trying to be I can't swear now because we're not allowed to swear but they aren't Jerks. trying to be <laughs> idiots you know generally people are good and they maybe they're a bit disorganized or maybe they got ahead of themselves or maybe they thought money was coming through and it wasn't they're not doing it to ruin your day that they you know so think about your cancellation policy I wouldn't make that too harsh but as we've said a job isn't a job until you have the deposit and, you know, I'd, I'd probably just leave you with the final advice that maybe you can still mend the friendship um, with the things that we've said in mind. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully. Let it go. Yeah, let it go. <laughs> All right, so Jennifer went on, um, she had a double-barrowed question. She went on to ask, um, she said, I live in a small regional town. The copy on local business brochures and flyers is shocking. She said it's downright embarrassing. What is the best way to approach business owners of copywriting services when they probably have no idea that they actually need them? Um, she said, she, I don't want to appear arrogant or tactless, which she admits she sometimes can be. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. Can't we all, Jennifer? Can't we all? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is something we covered a little bit in episode two, which is how to get clients. Um, it can really pay out, pay off, I should say, to reach out to people. But I think the key is to be polite because I've, um, when I've talked to clients um, and I've commented on their copywriting thinking that maybe someone else read it, wrote it, I found out that they actually wrote it. So always be polite because the business owner probably did that version. Um, explain the results possible rather than telling them they're rubbish and be helpful. Give them um, maybe a few tips as a gesture of goodwill and accept that they might say no. Have you ever approached someone and sort of gone, oh, we need to talk about your copywriting? <laughs> No, I must admit I haven't. I've never been much of a cold caller or much of a chaser of, of, of work, but I think it could be a great way to get work. Um, I think I'd probably show rather than tell, um, because I agree with you. Until it's pointed out to you, um, you might not understand why it's wrong. You know, and you could be saying, oh, the grammar doesn't work, or this is a bad choice of language. But, you know, sometimes you have to almost show the better uh, version to get them to see that their version wasn't so great um, you know maybe rewrite a little bit of the copy as a teaser and send it through um, another thing I think is a good idea is to join local business groups because in these smaller communities it's likely that someone in your business group might know the person with the bad copy and then you could maybe say hey I, I, I saw that they'd done this flyer I'm a copywriter and I've got a great idea for how they could make it a little bit better and they could kind of facilitate the introduction um, but I think Look, I think 
if someone in their business mind thinks that they're able to write copy in such a way that they've actually put it on a flyer and put it out in the universe, I don't think that many people are going to be that open to criticism. Some people are, but generally people don't like to be criticized. And what will be worse than if they wrote it is if their partner wrote it. Because oh, then oh. they get super on the dependent. My wife wrote the brochure, actually, and I think it's great. Um, so just play it very, uh, very carefully and very safe. You know, aggressive, it, it, not necessarily even aggressive, but going out there and approaching businesses and saying, hey, I could do a better job of this. I don't, I don't, I, that wouldn't, I, I don't think I'd be comfortable doing that. But for some people, I'm sure it works great. Yeah, I think being subtle and polite and kind and professional through all those conversations um, is, is definitely the way to go. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. Okay, so we have another question from our Facebook page. And this is from Mary Clark Radin. Apologies if I've said anybody's names incorrectly. Um, how do you explain the difference between content and copywriting to clients? They seem to be overlapping more and more. Do clients need both? And how do you make the benefits and advantages of a product and service sound wonderfully enticing without verging on the smarmy salesy category? So I personally think that copywriting is more about selling products and content writing is more about engaging readers. So copywriting would be more sales pages, websites, product pages. Content writing would be more blogs and articles and things like that. But I do agree that the lines are becoming increasingly blurred. So for example, I've been writing lots of product descriptions recently for some big brands and they've become so much more than a list of features because, you know, you're trying to beef up those product descriptions and, and you know, reach that figure of around 200, 300 words that we're told Google kind of likes and get your keywords in but also make them fun and interesting and engaging and differentiate your product from everyone else's products especially if you're selling the same thing which often e-commerce shops are you know you don't just have to sell the product you have to sell the fact that you're selling the product which is kind of hard so you know that would be classed as classic copywriting but what I've found that I'm doing is bringing more and more content writing into there so maybe I'm adding tips or testimonials or adding some more chatty uh, content in there and engaging facts and things like that so I do think they've blurred and I, I'm not sure that you know I'm not sure that many business people really care about the distinction I think this is something that copywriters and marketeers talk about in forums and business people don't really give a hoot you know they just want some words on the page what you call it I don't care really yeah. <laughs> give yourself whatever title you want yeah exactly <laughs> um, and I think that the smart factor is overcome by being very clear on your tone of voice, not overselling, not making fake claims and being real, backing things up with proof and stats and things like that and knowing your customers. Um, and let, let's be honest, sometimes smarmy copy works. Uh, we've talked on previous podcasts about those, um, you know, uh, shopping channel type adverts and they sell a lot of stuff. So don't underestimate smarmy copy. It often works really, really well. Yeah, I agree. I think um, authenticity is a real buzzword and we don't want to roll out cliches, but if you write copy that doesn't indulge in lots and lots of hype and the delivery lives up to the promises your copy makes, then then that's the goal. I think, you know, sincerity is, is how you do it. Yeah, and often the most understated copy, the shortest copy with no capitals, no bolding, no exclamation marks, and no long adjectives. The copy that just simply, you know, calls a spade a spade um, can be the most powerful because it's sort of humble. <laughs> and that, that can often work um, better than the big, brash, salesy, wellsy copy. 
Yeah, no extra steak knives required. Yep, exactly. So well, I that's think we've yeah, it. I all think so. Questions. That's all our questions, Kate. They were um, some pretty awesome questions from some pretty awesome listeners. I think we should do this again for sure because it's it's a good way of kind of tapping into what people our audience is listening is interested in. We're always saying you should be aware of what your audience is interested yeah. in. It's <laughs> a great way of, of finding it out. So thanks everyone. Yeah, thanks everyone. Look out for the next call out for questions, um, and maybe you can be on the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on iTunes and Stitcher. Your review will help other copywriters find us. You can also head to hotcopypodcast.com and leave your comments on the blog post for this episode. Until next time, happy writing. Happy writing.